We're going to talk this morning about loving one another, and this is a kind of the warm glow that comes from that, so I'm delighted. Uh, as we get started here, let me pray. Lord, I ask for uh, a time of awakening. I, it was such a sweet thing, Lord, to be reading uh, chapter 24 in Luke as I moved on to John this morning, and uh, to see how the two disciples were walking with you, Jesus, and they didn't recognize you. And then when there was the breaking of the bread, uh, after they talked about you for you know, probably two hours on the hike there to their destination, their eyes were open and they recognized they had been talking to you, Jesus. And I just pray that our eyes would be open here by your word, uh, by your heart, by what we're sharing of the scriptures that we could hear and see you and respond to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to talk about God the three in one. We're going to, part of a series, we're going to elevate the role of the Holy Spirit, but put that in the context of the Trinity. So this morning I get to talk about the Trinity. And uh, I'll overlap a little bit with, uh, as, as teachers are wont to do at times, repetition is the mother of all learning. I'll be repeating some of what we, I even mentioned last week. Uh, but I'm delighted to be able to take up this topic. Uh, and um, and uh, just the, the question of what questions we ask comes to mind. If we're asking good questions, we're likelier to get to good answers. And that's the key for us is to say, what is a good question that will help me grow? And one of the things that I like about A.W. Tozer, I've got this old classic book. It's a cover from about uh, 1960s, 1970, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And in this, he writes a, a chapter, a paragraph, an entry point to the book, why we must think rightly about God. Now, if we pose that as a question, why must we think rightly about God? Let me just read his answer here. This is the very first part of the first chapter, the very first words. What comes to mind, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show, I will say certainly show, that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will, be posit will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains lower or high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the great, gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the more, most portentous fact about any man is not what he uh, at any given moment may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is about what she says about him or leaves unsaid. Isn't that good? And it, it, it awakens in us the fact that uh, our portrayal of God, and we'll look at him this morning, really does have an influence in the way we function. Uh, one of the things, and I'll just give a broad entry point here, one of the things that struck me as I was prepping for this uh, talk this morning is how much God is a giver. 
God so loved the world that he gave his son. God gives and gives and gives again. We tend to be consumers. And there's a version of God that's offered. We'll talk about him as well, not the true version of God, but a version of God who is all about himself. He's called the devourer, and his purpose is to devour others. And and it strikes me that a lot of times we'll see in our culture around us a function of devouring, biting and devouring, of consuming, of being consumers. And that's just a little hint to us of where are we at on this question of what God is at the center of what we believe and what we do. And if we're givers and we find ourselves with a new impulse that we never had before we met Christ of giving ourselves away, you'll start to see the point of what Tozer just said and what the sermon is about here this morning. So as we come to this whole question, we start with, who is God broadly speaking? We end up with three titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Say it fast, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's who God is. There's one God who is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit God. So put all the dashes in there, and that's who God is, because that's, we find that portrayed, for instance, in uh, the baptismal formula of Matthew 28, 19, uh, where we find that Jesus, as he says, he leaves, he says, go therefore uh, and make, it really as you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so that whole idea of the going out is going to be done in the context of the one we believe in, the one we believe in, who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll find that this formula of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is repeated throughout the New Testament, but it's also found, if you look, for instance, the Spirit is in Genesis 1-2, and you'll find in Genesis, we'll come, back, come to this later on, let us make man in our image, I will indeed insist with Augustine and others that this is a preliminary shot across the bow of the Trinity, that what we have is the triune God in the Old Testament. We have the Father who does the work of directing, the Son who does the work of creating with the Spirit, and together the, the Son and the Spirit do what the Father is calling them to do in this communion and community of the Godhead. Uh, so we have so much of all of that uh, is context. The final blessing then of the Second Corinthians 13, 14 uh, gives us another snapshot. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Isn't that striking? It's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, consistently, per- persistently. Uh, we find that the three are f- present in Christ's baptism. We have the Father speaking from heaven, this is my son, the one I love, Take, pay attention to him, respond to him, also on the Mount of Transfiguration. We find the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus as the dove. Jesus is birthed by the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. Uh, so the role of the Holy Spirit is going to be found present in the whole triune reality of the God who ex- exists eternally as one God. There's one God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who dwells in communion. I'm not talking about three gods. I want to say that right up front. We're not talking about three gods, a clan. We're talking about one God who has three clear 
firm distinctions. And so what about the label of the Trinity? I'm going to pick on that one just for a second here. The, the problem of the Trinity, some will say, is it's not in the Bible, especially people who are on the fringes or outside of Christianity but want to draw us away from our faith, cultic groups will say, well, there is no Trinity mentioned in the Bible. Did you know that? Ha, 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 And I go, yes, I know that. Yes, 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 yes. But it's a handy word. And if you want me to talk in terms of the Trinity as the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, I will do that for your sake, if that's troubling you. But I do thank Tertullian in the second century for making it a little easier by just saying, can we just say the Trinity? And the church has agreed to that. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Let's just call the triune God, the three Father, Son, Holy Spirit God, the Trinity. And so it's, it's a shortcut. We confess that. But it's not a faith-based issue. It's a functional, practical application issue. So just to get that one out of the way, um, if you run into one of those cultic people that think they're going to knock you over with that, that reality, yes, the Trinity is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. So let me, let me just start out with what you would learn about God as your entry point in uh, theological training, Bible college, Sunday school, formal catechetical training, to use a fancy word. Let's go and take a look at the shield that we have. The traditional portrayal of the Trinity is as a, call it a shield, sometimes it's got framing around it, but it's essentially that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see the double lines there, each is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, that the distinctions are eternal. This is the reality that there are the three distinctions of the Godhead. There would be no Father if there was not the Son. There would be no Son without his Father, that that's the reality that defines them, and that is revelation. That's just disclosure. That's what God is telling us about himself that we didn't know until we start to look at the biblical content. And we go, okay, it sounds like three gods. I, I'm good at numbers. One is different than three. Three is different than one. And um, that's a problem. And in fact, one person that kind of ran into that confusion is a guy named Philip. When Jesus was talking about his relationship with the Father, I've used this before. So what we'll find is Philip is uh, asking, uh, you know, Jesus is as he's in the upper room and he's talking to them about his going to be with the Father and, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, uh, no one comes uh, unto the Father but by me. Uh, and then Philip says, Okay, Jesus, could you just get to the punchline? Show us the Father. It'll be enough for us. And what, is, what does he say to Philip? Let's go to the next slide. Jesus said to him, now this is a teacher who's a little weary. <laughs> sort of like, oh, have I been with you so long and you still do not know God? Oh, I'm sorry. Do not know God me. You want to know the Father? You don't know me. Oh, wait, wait a second. The Father is never the Son. The Son is never the Father. But guess what? When you see the Son, you have seen all that the Father is. 
find that in Hebrews chapter 1. We find that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. No one has seen God, uh, John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The God who is in his bosom, his right side, the communing presence with him has made him known. And both are called God. So we have one God, the one who is to be viewed. You can never see the invisible God who is the Father, but the Son is the one who makes him known in tangible terms. He's the one who comes and takes on flesh and dwells among us. But he's ready to say, do you not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do not believe that I am the Father and the Father's in me? We talk about this, the fancy word for it is perichoresis, the inner penetration, the mutual sharing, the communion and mutual participation of the Father, the Son, by the Holy Spirit and with and in the Holy Spirit. So that what we have here is one God who exists with the distinctions and the collection, the collective whole, the communion. In fact, I read a book that was very good by a guy named John Zazulis who wrote, uh, he said, being as communion is really helpful to us. And we're going to find that there's difficulty with that. That confusion, I think, comes from the problem of, um, of an enemy who throws dust in our eyes. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let me go on to the uh, next PowerPoint where we're going to describe a dynamic portrayal of God and the Godhead rather than what would, I would call the static portrayal of the shield. So what we would do is start out with, uh, the guy that helped me on this is uh, Augustine, who lived from about 350 to around 430. So we'll just round that out and say he, he, he flourished in the year 400. So that was a long time ago, before I was born. And, um, and he said, you know, th- the father is the lover. God so loved the world. The father is the one who loves uh, Jesus uh, said as he's debating with the theologians in um, um, John chapter 5, he says, uh, you know, I'm equal to God. Yes, I'm equal to God. You, they've just said, you've just made yourself equal to God. And he says, well, I am. Yes, you're right. And let me tell you something. The Father loves me. They kind of go, well, who, who do you think you are? And that's what he wants to tell them, he goes on and portrays that, that he and, the, he and God the Father are one. And that in that reality, that everything he does is the pouring out of the Father in and through him, that he is aligned with, with in his eternal existence, the Father. He's the Son of the Father. And in that communion, we have the reality of the Godhead sharing himself with us. And so with that, we have the Son is the one who is beloved. So uh, Augustine says the Father is the lover, the Son, the little formula that he came up with. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Spirit is the love between them. And we'll elaborate that. It doesn't diminish or undo the personhood or the distinctiveness of the Spirit, but it just explains what his role is as the go-between God. So with that reality, we have the lover, the beloved, and... um, The Spirit is the one that unites them. Let's go to the next PowerPoint. We'll see that that mutuality expresses the kind of mutual communion that the Son has, that as He is beloved, we go to uh, John 14, 31, where it says there, the Son loves the Father. You see, there's 
he's beloved and he in turn shares in mutuality that love that he has for the Father, from the Father, and then exchanges and sends it back. Again, the nature of God then we find later on will be that God is love. Not that he uses love, borrows love, draws upon love. He is love. If you want to know what love is, it starts with God in his existence. That God is the back and forth, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, that reality, if there's a distinction in the Godhead, that everything that is done within the Godhead is an expression of love. In my Bible reading this morning in Luke, I just got to the part where Jesus is crucified. He says, Father, if it's possible that this, this cup can be passed from me, uh, I please. I, and I think his complaint was not the physical loss or hurt of the crucifixion. It was the separation from the Father where he was going to become sin. And then the Father would have to, in that function, separate himself. And Jesus was never separated in ironic reality because he was doing the will of his Father. So do you see, that's the, tra- that's the piece that Satan never figured out, that there's no, indivi- there's no divisibility within God. But Jesus said, if it's possible, is there another way for us to do it? I know we've talked, Lord, from eternity, but... And the reality is, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So this whole thing of union and communion, in every respect, distinctions, yes, but always unity of oneness. And so in that reality, the Son is the lover and the, the beloved, and he returns that love to the Father. And then we find the next PowerPoint is that uh, we see this uh, work of the Spirit in accomplishing this work. Um, we find that um, uh, the Father, uh, as we said, loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is the one who's doing this. And it's interesting, 1 John 4, uh, 3, 24, it, this is not on the slide up on the, on the screen, but by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So what happens is we become Christians. What is it that starts to be birthed within us? It talks about if you know God, it will change you. This is what starts to change. Notice how much... People talk about what they need and what they want and what their rights are and my rights and your rights and you need to guard me and me and me and me and me and me and my and mine. Well, what's true of God? You and yours and he so loved the world that he gave. And that's what you can ask if the Lord wants to nudge you is where's your focus? Is it all about the me and mine and my rights and my standing and my significance and all the rest? If it is, it may be that we've got the wrong God in view because that's just not who God is as he portrays himself to us. And we start to see that the role of the Holy Spirit as love starts to be the one who is doing that work within us. Now, let's just be clear here. We'll talk more about the Holy Spirit next week. I say we, I will be listening and with great interest. But the role of the Holy Spirit is to facilitate this work between the Father and the Son. That's why we'll see a lot of times the Father and Son talked about as if we've got a dyad rather rather than the Trinity, the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father. The reality is that the Son is doing the quiet work behind. A lot of times we'll ask, how should I pray? Should I pray as much to the Father and as much to the Son and as much to the Holy Spirit so I get it right? 
No, no, the Spirit of God is doing the searching work in you, and he's the one who's telling you in Romans 8 that you can talk to God as Abba. And he, in turn, takes your struggling, I don't know how to communicate to God, thoughts, and he communicates that effectively. So the Spirit is the one that facilitates community and communion, but he's not the one who's trying to draw attention to himself. So he's always attending to the Son, and the Son attends to the Father. And that's the, go to Romans, uh, uh, John 15 for a little bit of that. So you start to get the reality that you, you, you really focus on Jesus, and Jesus will draw you to the Father. And the Spirit is the one who's going to make it all work. So yeah, I just say pray to Jesus, and, uh, but pray to the Father through Jesus. That's fine. You pray any way you want. But the point is we start to learn the distinctions, and that the Spirit, Mark 1, drives Jesus into the wilderness, the Spirit can be grieved and quenched. You want to hurt the feelings of the Holy Spirit, just say something bad about Jesus and start cursing God, and you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And you're going to quench His work in your life very effectively the moment. So go to Psalm 2. I'm freelancing here. It's not even my notes here. But it's what I feel like we just need to know that read your whole Bibles through, and you're going to find that these themes really are embedded in the whole Bible. Psalm 2. What is that? The nations rage against God. Have you noticed that in politics? Have you noticed that in news? Do you notice that in what's going on in China and Taiwan? Do you notice what's going on in Ukraine and Russia? The nations rage. Everyone's saying, we've got God on our side, one version of God or another. But what does God say in Psalm 2? Here's the question. I'm laughing at what you're doing because, frankly, in the end, it's all futile. I'll tell you what. Kiss the sun. I'm sending you my anointed one. How do you respond to him? That is the question. And that's the question for the church. Do we have the sun in view? Because if we do, the Spirit of God is going to pour that love out uh, that he is sharing between the Father and the Son. So one of the passages that I wanted to make sure we, we look at is uh, that the motor for everything we do is 1 John 4, 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Uh, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Once again, it's not a title that he adopts. He is love. And if you want to know what love is, look at God and look at Jesus. God so loved that he gave. Jesus was so willing that he became the lamb who was slain for our sake. And the Passover of sin occurred because of God's mercy in sending his beloved son. How much does he love us? So much so that he let his beloved son be slaughtered for our sake. This is the love of God for us. And so how much does God love us beyond measure? And so with that reality, then we go to the role of the Holy Spirit of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 through 11 is really a, a striking verse and one that I have just been uh, becoming more and more alert to as my own growth and spiritual life takes place. That which eyes haven't seen, nor ears heard, nor the mind of man can see, that's what God has made available for those of us who love him. Where am I reading? I'm reading from a text we don't have up here, but it's the prelude to, um, well, there it is, part of it is there, uh, is that that's what God has made available for those who love him. Now notice, if we're loving ourselves and wanting to use God, it doesn't work. 
That's why if you don't have what eyes haven't seen nor ears heard nor the mind, mind of man conceived, but instead say, how come I haven't gotten this? And how come I and you didn't answer my prayer for this and you didn't answer my prayer for that? Could be your focus is absolutely wrong. But here's the reality of what God gives to those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. All the things about how great God is and how rich God is and how profound God is. And that as he offers these realities, he does it by the Spirit who searches everything, even the depths of God. So what is the distinct role of the Spirit? He is the searching presence of the Godhead. He's the pokey, proby, Father is Spirit, Son is Spirit, before the creation, before the incarnation. They all exist as spiritual realities with the distinctions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who's saying, Father, how are you this morning? Oh, before the Son was created. Okay, well, I don't know how to say that. But how are you this morning? I'm fine. Go tell the Son I'm thinking about him. Okay, so the Spirit shuttles over. Yeah, this is way over tangible. I'm sorry. I apologize. But I just want to get the relational peace in play. And the Son says, ah, oh, tell the Father I love him. I can hardly wait for what lies ahead today. Okay, the Spirit, having searched the depths of the Son, reveals that to the Father. Catch that? So the Spirit is the go-between God, the one who is actively communing and communicating. And who draws us into that communion once we love God? The Spirit of God does. And he lets us in on that fellowship. In fact, it's interesting, a verse that I won't cite formally, but I'm conscious of, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where it says, for we as Christians are the fragrance of the Christ-to-God relationship. For some, it's the warning or the smell of death, the aroma of death. For others, it's the aroma, the inviting aroma of life. Let me have this. Let me come to this. So not everyone's going to respond to the fragrance of the Christ-to-God relationship, but there are people out there, the sheep who hear his voice, they're going to go, oh, now I like what you are offering. Can I have that? And that's the point of being Christians, is to share that fellowship that God has eternally within himself. So, there is a battle, though. Let's go back to the opposition of the Trinity that's always a battle over numbers. Uh, the, the problem is that Satan's version of God in uh, uh, Genesis uh, 3, um, 5, we pick it up, um, that he uh, says... Uh, um, yeah, I'll just, just cite this. You can be like God. But what God does he want you to be like? His version of God. And the thing, the little secret that Satan, when he talks about who God is, is that he's talking about a singularity, a monad, a mono-God. And what is the characteristic of that God? How about the characteristics of the God of Islam and even Judaism? That is a God with no companionship, a God without relationality, a God who is purely the number one. And with that, there is no one but the one. And with the one, then, what characterizes the one is power, authority, sovereignty, and I'm in charge of everything. And I'm going to crush you if you get in my way. Do you get a little flavor of what God is like if you get him wrong? It can be terrifying. Versus a God who lives eternally in a love relationship, in, in communion. So the question is, 
the number issues are important. Let's not mistake there's one God with saying there's a God who is a monad who has no communion or otherness present in him. The God who is love is important because for, for, for one thing, we have to recognize that love is always a transitive verb. For me to love, I have to have someone to love. See, I can't say, hmm, I'm going to now become a lover. <laughs> oh, now I've loved. What? See, the question is, who do you love? What do you love? That defines who you are. It's who you love that defines love. And the reality is, you can say, I am. That's an intransitive verb, I am. Fine. But I am, we'll find when we get into the Bible, is always going to be a relational I am. And it is I am one who loves. And go to John and you'll find out how all the I am's are folded into relationships. And so that reality of the one God is a deceptive distraction. Let's not be confused by numbers. We have, so let's go to Genesis, or, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. We, we start to see how we were made. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the plural, our, our there. That's because, indeed, even though some weak-kneed theologians say, well, actually, it's a majestic, it's a plurality of majesty. I go, no, it's not. It's a trinity, you rascals. Knock it off. And with that reality, we have, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fishes of the seas and over the birds. And In other words, let them be gardeners and caregivers over everything that we have created for them to then take care of, ruling over them every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, the one man, male and female. So some of the gender exclusions is, I'm this and I'm that. No, we are together one that's the plan. Out of Adam came Eve, back into Eve, back into Adam comes Eve, and out of Adam and Eve come procreation. Get that? Let us make man in our image. God does creation. Adam and Eve, male and female, comes procreation. You get it? So all the divisionness, the gender divisions that we're seeing, I don't think will be coming from the right source. What we find is God wants us to move into oneness. And marriage then becomes our practical workshop for how this works. How does it actually get accomplished? So we go to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one or one flesh. And this reality of what God wants us to do is a reflection of the image of God as a relational reality, not as a set of capacities that we have. A lot of times we'll teach theology as God has given humans a set of capacities, thinking, choosing, talking. When in fact, it does say, let us make man in our image male and female. It's a relational reality that is the starting point. And from that come other functions of communicating and sharing. And within the core of that is the function of mutual devotion or love, just as the love between the Father and the Son is what is set out for us as we have been created. We have made to be, we've been made to be lovers. That's who we are. And within that love reality, we start to unfold to the world around us as those who are lovers. And so when I was watching not too long ago, 
uh, a man trying to share the beginning of a worship service with a son clinging to his chest. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? See, that's what it is. The child is the reflection of the man-woman communion and union. And the child understands there's no problem with the Trinity as being three but one, because as far as the child is concerned, when mom and dad are still at that age where there's not all that independence, giving a hug to each other, one shows up and the other one goes and gives the hug, who wants to go and get into the middle of that hug? Yeah, thank you for that. You see, that's what it is. The child sees the two as one. And unfortunately, when marriages start to break, it's because it's about me. No, it's about you. You know, the back and forthness of who's more important and whose way is going to, you know, all that junk that is the part of sin in us when we want to be like the wrong version of God instead of the communing reality that we were made in God's image, male and female. Now, I'm talking to you as a bachelor, which is tragically ironic. But the reality is I can speak with theory that is pure, untroubled by any confusing experience. It is pure theory. <laughs> but those of you who are married, you know that that's what you long for. You really long for that union and communion that, that is why you married each other and why the children have a stable place to live and flourish because they see love, they learn love, they know love, they can give love. And that's where we need to grow up as a church. There's a lot of us. None of us will be close to what we're meant to be. But that's why we have to start with the right vision of God so that we start to have correctives that go in the right direction rather than listening to the culture, which is all about the wrong directions and what the culture wants to seek. So the workshop of marriage is this love and reciprocity. And so we go to the, to the uh, next... Uh, well, we're going to save that a little bit. Uh, what we want to do is talk about how God in his purpose then uh, takes that passage of Genesis 2.24, and let's go to Ephesians 5.31 and 32, where he's talking about Christ and the church, Christ and the church, and he says, well, let me explain this. Verse 30, 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and uh, hold fast to his wife. He's quoting uh, Genesis 2.24. He's going back before the fall. 224 is before chapter 3 is where the fall occurs in the garden, garden of Eden. So 224, no fall, no brokenness, everything is right. This is what's meant to be. The two shall become one flesh. Okay? He says, now, ah, this mystery is profound. You go, there's no mystery there. Two people get married. He says, what I want to do is say, let, let's take this verse to a deeper level. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh, ho, 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 my. So when Jesus is asked, is there, what about marriage in heaven? I was reading Luke again, and I got to that part. Seven, you know, this woman, she had husband one, husband two. Which one will be her husband in heaven? And he says, do you not get it? Do you not know the scriptures? There's no marriage in heaven. Well, there is one marriage. The two shall become one and we become the bride. Sorry, guys, gender issues aside, sexual issues aside, we become the bride of Christ. And that's the marriage of eternity. 
And that's why the Word of God is washing and scrubbing us so that we can be washed, Ephesians 5 again, washed by the water of the Word to be made holy and blameless so that we're ready for the eternal. And how does Revelation end with the bridal feast, the feast of the bride and the groom coming together into eternity? So the whole idea is the two shall become one is the ambition that God has and will achieve. And he's just, Jesus came to do winnowing. You know what winnowing is? You've got the wind blowing and you've got weeds and you've got to get the chaff separated. He's in the process of just separating the chaff from the wheat. And churches are even full of chaff and wheat. Some are the real thing and some are just pretends who have really not come to know Jesus. And God is going to separate the wheat and the goats, you know, the, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff. And this whole thing of separating who really loves him, who's really united to him, is the function of life. And it means that we're not going to get the easy way out. We will experience as much difficulty, even as Christians, as the non-Christian. The question is, how do we respond? Are we lovers of God, and do we love our neighbors? And so with that reality, then, we come to another passage that is... Uh, uh, oh, I, I skipped a passage. I want to get to this one, too, just to talk about the union that we have with God in Christ is 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 15 uh, through 20. Do you not know, and this is a problem that Paul is having with, he hears words from Corinth that they've got prostitutes. Some of the guys are going to the temple prostitutes, which are readily available for half a drachma or whatever it is that the charge is, denarius, whatever it is. They're just going and just saying, hey, this is socially acceptable. It's just not a big deal. And, and Paul says, it is a big deal. Let me tell you what. You do not get how we are wired. I just was reading, I hate to say it, in the news, this Indiana, someone was saying that the anti-abortion stuff in Indiana, this female co-ed was saying, well, don't go to these schools in Indiana because you are going to have to be celibate. You know, well, that's a little bit about you, lady. How about just one woman for one man for one life, huh? That might give you a little more security in your relationships than the strategy you seem to have in mind. So there's so much to this that touches our culture. And so what we find is the problem is true in any age. And so 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? God forbid. It says never, but probably a better translation. God forbid. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, here's Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, united by faith, becomes one spirit with him. Oh, so how do I have eternal life? By the Spirit of God who comes and unites with my spirit in a spirit-to-spirit communion. That's how I'm born again. You must That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus. Oh, so Paul is expanding that, extending that. So he says, so he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a, a person commits is outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Oh, my. 
You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body because the Spirit of God dwells union-based, spirit-to-spirit, uppercase, lowercase, spirit. This is how life emerges for me. This is where my values change. And if I set my mind on the Spirit, Galatians 5, then I start to live with the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the meekness. But that's next week's sermon. I don't know what's going to be preached next week, but I'm sure something like that will come out. So as we come to the conclusion then, what we find out is the so what. How does this change the way we live? Well, it stirs an overflowing love in us. That imago Dei uh, reality, let us make man male and female, uh, Genesis one that we looked at. Um, we finally come to the final PowerPoint here where we see that, uh, uh, let's get that visualization, that the Holy Spirit, the love between the Father and the Son is now poured out into our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. And so then we, the church, are God's beloved people as he pours that love into our hearts and through our hearts to others. So let's go to John uh, if, uh, uh, do I have that up here? I don't know if I do. Anyway, Romans 5.5, 5, if we've got that. Romans 5.5 5 says, uh, I think we said that earlier, uh, we have sufferings and it produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us and put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that the final slide there of pictures is the Spirit of God pouring that love out to us and through us into the world around us. And so, one of the great verses in the Scripture is Jesus giving the new commandment um, uh, in John 13, 34 to 35. He says, a new commandment that I give to you is that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay? So, that's my question for Harvest Church. How are we doing? How are we doing? Is that what characterizes us? They, they go, people on Prune Hill. I live on Prune Hill. I'm just on the low side here. But I'm not hearing rumbles about, do you hear about that group of people that love each other so profoundly? Up there, they go to that place called Harvest Community Church. Now, it can be true of us, and they just haven't heard yet, but that's what will happen is by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. And the word will start to get out. And it will start to be displayed by the way we care for each other, the way we share with each other. Well, I'm a teacher who preaches occasionally. I just preached. <clears throat> Let me end with a book. <clears throat> you need to get this book. I think we have a few copies available for $10. And you ought to be quick if you don't have one and rush back there and grab it. It's right back there. Now share it, because I've just been preaching and teaching that. And make sure you share it with others. But believe me, this is such a good little book. This is, I know Mike Reeves, who wrote it. And uh, he was a preacher and a teacher for young college adults. He's an Englishman, a Brit. So he's, he's got a PhD. He's very bright. He's very able. But he's able to communicate in a lively fashion. And this is a good book that just talks about delighting in the Trinity, and he says the same thing that Tozer said. If you don't get God right, nothing is going to work in your Christianity. 
So, so this is just a good primer, and he'll say a whole lot more on, on questions that I have not addressed about the Trinity. But one thing I do like is that he came and got in touch with me because he said, you know, your dissertation on Richard Sibbs really changed my life. He said literally, he says, I never met him. He says, yeah, I read it and I wept. I said, yeah, my, my supervisor did too. No, no, he says, I, he said, because of Tozer's love for God and his love for others. Not Tozer, Sibbs, Richard Sibbs. Sibbs lived during the time of Shakespeare. So that man's spirituality just was profound. And so, so here's what he does. He takes a quote. He's got a picture of Sibs in the middle of the book here. You can see what Sibs looks like, a drawing. And here's what Sibs says, and I'll conclude with this. If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. So why did God create the world? Sibs says, because he had a communicative spreading goodness. That's why I write my blog as spreading goodness. He would never have had created the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. They didn't need to make us. Didn't need to do the creation. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation or a redemption. He loves us. He knows he's going to let us explore what it's like not to love him. But inevitably, some will be drawn back into that love relationship that we were made for and meant for. And we'll find a delight in that beyond all other delights. Now, let me just pray and then we'll have communion. Father, I want to thank you so much for sending the Son. Jesus, I want to thank you for coming and being willing to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to pour your love out into our hearts. Thank you for the chance to reflect on these things. And I also want to thank you, Lord, for the communion that we get to share because this reflects that sharing of life in such a profound way that we get to have it illustrated through the elements that we will celebrate now. So we thank you in Jesus' name for what we get to share in. Amen.